If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 6. We completed John chapter 5 last week, and we're going to be in the 6th chapter of John, and we're going to see how Jesus is really going to focus. We're going to zone in on two of his particular disciples by the name of Philip and Andrew. We're going to see, Philip and Andrew, that they're going to begin to gather just a glimpse of what it means to truly understand who Jesus' true nature and what it really means. Now, let me just be honest with you for a second. I gave up trying to be a good preacher several years ago, trying to hone my craft or trying to impress people with my preaching skills. That's really, it's just not me. My goal, my desire every week is to be prepared and to be an effective teacher. And so, you know, I'm not really too concerned whether or not you're impressed with the presentation of how I present God's word because I know that my words mean nothing. I know that whether or not you're impressed by my, my ability to, to proclaim God's word is not nearly as important as you leaving impressed by God's word itself because God's word is the only thing that has the power to change lives today. So with that said, I'm going to warn you that today in particular, I'm gonna be more like a, a teacher more like a professor than your old-fashioned preacher, okay? We're going to faithfully walk through this text. We're going to look at it verse by verse, and we're going to try to make sure that we understand it first and foremost in context of what was going on at that time. And then finally, at the very end of our message, we're going to try to gather what does it mean for us today? What's the application for us? So with that precursor, before we jump into John chapter 6, let's begin by understanding that where we left off last Sunday at the end of chapter 5, that between the end of chapter 5 and where we begin today, there's a gap of time that exists. Now, most scholars believe that that gap of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6 is anywhere between 6 and 12 months. And you say, Blake, why is that important? Well, it's important to know because if you remember where we ended last Sunday, that in chapter 5, the religious authorities, they're trying to do what to Jesus? They're trying to kill him. And do you remember why they were trying to kill him? They're trying to kill Jesus because he made the most radical claim that has ever been made on the history of the earth. And that is that he claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the Son of God. So that's where we ended off in chapter 5, that they're, they're trying to kill Jesus. And now as we're going to begin chapter 6, after the, the 6 to 12 months that have occurred, Jesus' popularity and his fame has now become widespread. And that's going to explain this large crowd that's going to be following Jesus at this time. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to John chapter 6. If not, the words will be on the screen. Let's look at the first four verses. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now church, understand this is the only miracle other than the resurrection that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. So we have this miracle, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, and it's in John. So we're going to use the other three Gospels as almost a secondary source to John. And in using those other Gospels, we know that when you read the story in Matthew, when you read the story in Mark, 
that Jesus and his disciples, that they're just returning from this large preaching event, this uh, message and this mission that they've been on. So Jesus and his disciples, they're returning from this, this excursion where they've been preaching, and now, of course, they're tired. And what do they want to do? They want to get away. They want to rest. They want to get away from the crowds. But as we're about to see, that just won't happen. We're going to see that um, Jesus and his disciples, they're crossing over the Sea of Galilee. Of course, they're on a boat. But there's a large group of other people, and they're on on land, and they're on foot, and they're traveling uh, across the shore, and they are going from surrounding cities so that by the time that Jesus and his disciples, they get to the other side, that uh, according to Matthew chapter 14, there was a mass of people who were already waiting on Jesus. Now let's think about this for a minute. Don't you think that this would be a good sign? That Jesus would be excited about the fact that, hey, my my goal is I'm trying to tell as many people as I can about that, hey, I'm the son of God, I've come to bring salvation, I've come to bring eternal life, and now there's a large group of people, and that should be a good thing, right? Because if you want to get your message across, the the best way you can get it across is by telling the most number of people. But if you keep reading in this passage, you see that that's not really necessarily a good thing. When you look at verse 2, you'll notice that they're following Jesus not because of the message that he's proclaiming, but why? They're following him because of the miracles that he had been performing. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him. But don't miss this next part. Why were they following him? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The crowd... They weren't motivated by faith at all. They weren't motivated by their genuine love for Jesus. In fact, it was quite the opposite. This crowd, almost as if they were thrill seekers, and they say, hey, there's something in it for me, so I'm going to follow, and I'm going to see what Jesus can do for what? For me. And not much has changed in 2019, has it? Many times you see people just wanting from Jesus like he's a genie in a bottle, like he's, a, like he's Santa Claus, and we're just going to follow him as long as he gives us good gifts, as long as he does what I want him to do. And Matthew records this about the crowds. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and listen to what he did. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. I love this about Jesus, that even though the crowds, even though their motives were superficial, because of Jesus' overflowing mercy, what does he do? He meets their needs anyway. But in this particular miracle, I think that Jesus is really out to teach more than just the crowds. Now, I think that's kind of a byproduct that they're going to learn something. They're going to receive the benefit from what we all know ends up being the feeding of 5,000. But I think that Jesus' main point, his main audience, isn't the crowd. I think his main audience are those 12 disciples that are there watching. Because we know that, ironically, it's not through the crowds, but it's through the 12 that Jesus will eventually do what? change the world. The crowds will eventually desert Jesus, but 11 of the 12 disciples, they'll do what? They stick with Jesus. And as a result of these 11 men sticking with Jesus, heaven and earth are changed because of what he does through 11 men who are fully devoted to him. So church, listen to me. That means that we shouldn't lose faith, even though we know the undeniable fact is that there is a rapid decline across our nation in church attendance. People are not attending churches often, nor do they think that faith is important as it used to be. Now, should that bother us? Yes, 
Should we seek at First Baptist Church Decatur to share the message of Jesus and that we should desire for more and more people to be here every Sunday? Absolutely. But should we sit in fear of the shrinking number of people who are attending church on Sunday mornings and feel that the gospel is not going to take root or feel like the word of God is going to be any less effective than it was in the past? Absolutely not. If he can turn the world upside down with 12 ragtag men, what can he do today with a small group of individuals who are bound together as a family of faith if we are solely committed to the advancement of his kingdom and his kingdom alone? We don't have to fret. We don't have to fear about the numbers because we have the power of God living inside of us. If we will stop worrying about the outside and we'll say we're going to be all that God's called us to be, then I think the outside world will see something different inside of us and they'll desire to be a part of what God is doing through us. So Jesus goes up on this mountainside with his disciples. And then he asks Philip a very pointed question. Look at the question he asked him in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So there's a problem. This large crowd of people in haste to come and follow Jesus, many of them had traveled more than 10 miles. Because they were in such a hurry, because they knew that boat was going and they were on foot, they had to hurry so they didn't make plans for lodging. They didn't make plans for food. Motel 6 wasn't open and Chick-fil-A was closed, all right? So they're worried, they're hungry. And now they've been out in the hot sun all day and they're tired, they're hungry. As we like to say at home, we're hangry, right? You know, you're just irritable. And so now Jesus looks to Philip and he said, hey, how are we gonna feed all these people? Now listen, Jesus is the son of God. He wasn't asking Philip because he really wanted Philip to come up with a plan. He's not asking Philip as if he's wringing his hands and I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe you have a better plan than I do. No, of course not. Since Jesus is fully God, we know that there's a reason. What is the reason that he is asking Philip, how are we supposed to feed all these people? Aren't you glad that text answers at the very next verse? Verse 6. He, meaning Jesus, said this to do what? To test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus, he asked this question to Philip as a way of testing for his disciples. He wanted to know why. What was the reason for him wanting to test it? He wanted to test his faith. He wanted to test his faith, not only so that Jesus knew where he was, but so that Philip would recognize where he was. We see this all throughout the New Testament, that Jesus will ask questions or, or Paul will ask questions to test their faith. See, friends, Jesus wasn't asking Philip a practical question. Instead, he was really asking Philip, tell me in this moment, how do you view the world right here? Friends, that's what Jesus was after right there. He was trying to change Philip's perspective. He was trying to change Philip's viewpoint. And for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, who have accepted God's love and we understand God's grace in our lives, it should change our vision of the world. We should view the world differently. As followers of Jesus, for those who understand the grace of God, who've experienced his forgiveness, the lens through which we see the world should be different than those that have not accepted or trusted Jesus for salvation. One of the most dreaded days I have every single year is going to the optometrist. Y'all ever dread that? 
Here's why I dread it. I dread it not because it's a, a difficult test, not because it's a painful or it's gonna hurt, but I dread it because I know the weight of what's going to happen based on how I answer the doctor's questions. You know what I'm saying? You sit there in that chair and he puts this contraption in front of your eyes and he says, what's better? One, two, three, four, five, six, something. Go back to one, two, uh, C, three. Uh, I don't know. Can you go back? I'm so stressed because I know I don't want to mess this up because how I answer your dumb questions about one, two, three, or four, it's going to impact how I see the world for the next year. So I, I'm always stressed about that. But friends, Every one of us, we have a lens in which we see the world through. Let me be honest with you. For some of us, we see the world through a selfish lens. We think the world revolves around us. That everyone's here to meet my needs, my preferences, it's all about me. For some of us, we see the world through an inflated lens. We think we're the most important person in the room. We think that we have more power, more influence, more authority than we really do. For some of us, if we're honest, we view the world through a skeptical lens. Ah, what's the use? I can't do anything. It's almost a, a defeatist mentality. I'm not, uh, the world's already, you know, so terrible, I can't make a difference in the world. But church, whatever our perspective may be, we all view the world through a particular lens, and friends, apart from understanding God's grace, and the only way you can understand God's grace is through the gift of Jesus Christ, we are not going to view the world through the lens in which God intended us, for us to view. So right here, it's almost as if Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm about to give you an eye exam. I'm about to find out how do you view not only this situation, but how do you view the world at this time? And look at how Philip responds to this question. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a what? What's that last word? A little. We'll come back to that word in just a minute. Now, 200 denarii was the equivalent of eight months' wages for an average Jewish person during that time. So I did some math, which is a scary thought for me to do, um, and I said, okay, what's the average wage in Alabama? The average wage in 2018 was $39,000. So if we were to say, what would eight months of those wages be? The equivalent would be to say that it would have cost $26,000 to feed all of the people who were there. Now the question is, was Philip incorrect in saying it would cost eight months wages? Probably not. I think he was probably smart. He's probably right there. But what we're supposed to see is that he's missing Jesus' point. Remember, don't forget this, because this is why, why we're going through the book of John in order. Philip had already seen, this is the fourth miracle that Jesus has performed in the book of John. He had already seen Jesus heal the lame man. He had already seen it, including the very first miracle in John chapter 2, where he did what? The very first what? Remember the wedding of Cana? He turned water into wine. Was it just a little bit of wine? No, it was enough for everybody. He had already seen that, but for some reason, he forgets that or he chooses not to focus on Jesus, but instead, Philip, he's looking at the world. He's looking at the situation through what kind of lens? Through a skeptical lens. All he could think about in the moment is the fact that I don't have enough money 
for what it would cost to provide even just a little bit of bread for each person. So as they're talking, another disciple, Andrew, he steps up and he speaks. Listen to what he says in verses 8 through 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, he said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So Andrew, he speaks up. It's almost like it's a rhetorical question. Hey, by the way, I found this little boy. He brought a sack lunch today. He's got five loaves of bread. He's got two fish. But I love the way that the message translation puts it. But then he says, but that's a drop in the bucket for a crowd like this. Five loaves of bread. That's, that's not even going to get very far. But Jesus, because of who he is, he doesn't reprimand them because of their lack of faith. But notice what he does. Look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You've heard this story before. Text says there are 5,000 men. You include women and children. Most scholars believe there could have been as many as 20,000 people there on this hillside. So Jesus, he takes the bread, he takes the fish, and watch this, without fanfare, all these televangelists that claim to do miracles, there's no fanfare here. What does he do? He gives thanks, he breaks the bread, remember, hopefully that would be a precursor to the Lord's Supper, and then he looks up to his father, and then he begins to pass out the bread. Here's what I love about this miracle, there's a couple things. He could have instantly just snapped his fingers and provided enough bread and enough fish that would have been in front of everyone. But he didn't. Look at, at Mark. And in Mark, look how Mark captures this in Mark chapter 6, 41. This is the same story here. It says, he blessed and broke the loaves. And look at this phrase. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. Church, here's what I love about that part. He chose to use the disciples to distribute the food. He didn't have to use them. But he wanted to because all throughout the gospel, all throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus uses weak and frail people to accomplish his mission. Doesn't that give you hope today? It gives me hope today that these guys that that were skeptical of you and life through a skeptical lens that continued didn't get it, even though Jesus was in front of them, he continued to go back to them and he uses them to accomplish his will. And then after everyone had eaten, what does he do? He says, hey, I want you to go and I want you to pick up everything that's left over. Because when Jesus does something, he never does it halfway, does he? Instead of this little taste, remember it says, Philip said, There's, I can't even give them enough, I have 200 naira just for a little taste of bread. Look at verse 12, what really happened. And when they had eaten their fill, that's no little taste. After they'd eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. 
Now, people have made a lot about trying to figure out what does it mean? What's the significance of the fact that there were 12 baskets left over? There's lots of theories. Some say there were 12 baskets because that meant that every disciple had a basket so that that would be a reminder of what Jesus had done. Some say that the 12 represented the number of completeness, and so that's why it was 12. Some say, well, it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. One of my favorites, and it said that that maybe there were 12 baskets because each disciple would see that not only did they have enough for the entire crowd, but there was enough for leftovers so they could eat it the next day and be reminded of who God was. We all like leftovers, don't we? And it's a reminder of, hey, this is what happened yesterday, and we can still enjoy the fruit there. But to be honest with you, we don't know for certain. There's lots of theories, but we don't know for certain. But here's what's amazing to me about the fact that there were leftovers. In an incredible display of God's overwhelming grace, the leftovers far exceeded the original five barley loaves. He produced more than what he started with. And by the way, I find it interesting that Jesus used what type of bread? Barley bread. What's the significance of barley bread? Barley bread was the cheapest kind of bread you could buy at the time. It was known as the bread for the poor. Okay, again, why does that matter? It matters. Because I think Jesus, remember, he's talking to those disciples. And I think he's telling those disciples, no matter what you have, even if it's bread for the poor, if you give it to Jesus, he can use it. You've heard the saying before, little is much when what? When God is in it. In church, the same is true for us today. The Lord will take whatever you have in your hands and when you give it to him, he can turn it in to something incredible. Chances are you're like me. And it's easy to look at other people and to compare your gifts, to compare what you have your talents, your treasures. Say, oh, well, if I had as much as they had, if I had what they had, if I had those gifts, if I had their kind of money, then I'd be able to give more to the Lord. Well, friends, listen to me. The Lord says, you give me what you have. You don't worry about what other people have. You don't worry about what you don't have. You give me what you do have. All you have is barley bread, you give me barley bread. All you have is two widows' mites, you give me the two widows' mites. All you have is weakness, you give me that weakness and watch what God can do through it. In the book of John, there are seven signs and wonders that Jesus performs. The first, as we talked about just a minute ago, was the miracle of turning water into wine. This is the fourth miracle. Beginning in in verse 35 of chapter 6, Jesus also gives seven what he calls I am statements. Remember, I am is the covenant name used for God. So that's what what God used um, when he was at the burning bush. And Moses said, who should I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them that I am sent you. And we're going to see that in John chapter 6, verse 35, and in two Sundays, that Jesus will actually say that I am the bread of life. But here's what's so cool about this. Before telling the people that he is the bread that will never satisfy, that will will never leave them wanting, Jesus, he does what? He first multiplies the the bread on this grassy hillside to show the people that he is the Messiah. So before he tells them, he's showing them. And again, the crowd, no doubt, they had to have left amazed by what was happening there. But I don't think the crowd was his primary audience during the day. I think his primary audience were the disciples who were in front of them. And by the end of this miracle, 
I think some of them, maybe not all, but maybe some of them, they began to have what sometimes I call a light bulb moment where things start to click and you say, oh, now I'm starting to understand. It's starting to make sense. Now, they don't think they fully understand. We're going to see in just a few verses that they still have questions and they still have doubts. And in fact, even after Jesus's um, death, between his death and resurrection, they're doubting and they're questioning. So I don't think they fully get it. But I think in this moment, they are beginning to understand not only who Jesus is, but why he came. I think that they are beginning to get it. And here's what's so exciting to me about being a part of First Baptist Church Decatur right now. I think we have people sitting inside the sanctuary right now who are starting to get it. Now, there are many people who have gotten it for a long time. What do I mean that you get it? I mean that you view your life through a lens of faith. Many people, many of you sitting here in this room, you have viewed your life through a lens of what God is doing in your life, what he's doing through you. People like Ms. Sarah Etheridge, right over here who at 93 years old, faithfully, every single Sunday, prepares a lesson and teaches every single Sunday. She gets it. People like Ozella Stewart, who's 90 years young, just a few weeks ago, still plans trips for our senior adults. She still goes and she makes sure that there's food for the Baptist Association. She still cuts the grass for her neighbor when she can't. I don't know if you know this, but David Matherly is a hero of mine. David Matherly, he retired at a young age. David, you can pay me for that later. But you know what David didn't want to do? David didn't want to sit on the sidelines and say, I'm just going to go watch TV until the Lord takes me home. He wanted to use his time. He wanted to use his talents. He wanted to use what God had given him to go make a difference. So what does he do now? Three days a week, he goes to the CCC, and he uses the talents that he has, and he tinkers with these electronics that people give so that when they're given to the homeless, that they're actually in used condition, that they're usable condition. People like Rhonda Woodall and Joanne Gentry are my heroes. Why? Because they use what happened in their life, they use their past, and they say, we're going to go to East Acres, and we're going to make sure that there's a population of people that know that First Baptist Church Decatur, even more important than that, that Jesus Christ loves them and has a plan and a purpose for their life, so we're going to invest our life into them. People like Jill Palmer, who every single week provides for the Go Bus. And a lot of people think, oh, the Go Bus, that's Sunday morning. No, 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 that starts on Saturday with making phone calls and seeing who's going to be there, who do I need to pick up, who's going to be there, what time do I need to go. And then she'll get here around 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings. She'll drive the bus, sometimes not getting back home until after 1 p.m. Why? Because there are 8 to 15 people that she wants to make sure that apart from the go bus that they hear that there's a faith family that loves them and they can experience the love of Jesus just like we can. People like Neil Patterson. Neil Patterson, he works and he's gone a lot of the times. But I don't know if you know this, when Neil Patterson is here, if you come in this room before 9.15, you'll find him walking through every single pew, praying over every pew, because he knows that what God and the Holy Spirit can do is more important than what I can do and what Matt can produce. People like Jessica Setzer. Jessica Setzer comes every single week during the school year. You know why? Because there are 90 backpacks that she fills with food because there are kids who are on free and reduced lunch in our city that we're not sure if they're gonna have food over the weekend, but by golly, because of the goodness and grace of our people and her efforts, they're gonna have a backpack filled with food. People like Jamie Boyle. Jamie's a hero of mine. Jamie tragically lost her husband earlier this year. And Jamie, you had every right to take a year off. 
say, you know what, I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to make sure that I'm being ministered to. The very next Sunday, she was in a classroom with two and three-year-olds, my daughter being one of them, my son being one of them, making sure that they knew that there was a Savior that loved them. These people get it. These are just examples. And we could go all throughout the church of people who get it, that they understand that this life is about more than themselves. There are also people who just recently, through various situations in their life, their eyes are starting to open and they've seen things happen in their life. And other people think, oh, that's just coincidence. But they understand that, no, this is God who's moving and he's working. He's orchestrating these things because God wants a a bigger purpose in my life. God's been patient with them, and now they're beginning to see that God has a plan and a purpose that's far greater than they ever could have imagined. Two more examples. Ray Pickering and Stephen Purrier. Two years ago, maybe three years ago, Stephen Purrier went on his first international mission trip. Why? Because his daughter wanted him to go. He wasn't really sure what he was going to do there. He's a golf pro. They don't have golf courses in Haiti in case you haven't been there, all right? He wasn't sure what he was going to do. So he came back and he said, what in the world? I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a medical person. I'm not a Bible teacher. I'm not, I can't preach. I can't sing. So he began to pray and said, God, how can you use me for your kingdom? He began a, a, a ministry that you know called Haiti Seas, collecting eyeglasses, developing computer equipment that we purchased so that you can give an eye exam so that whenever he goes to Haiti, between 80 to 120 people every single uh, week, a day that they are there, receive glasses. Think about this, who never would be able to see apart from this ministry. But it doesn't stop there. Then he said, how can I use what God has gifted me so that I can impact the city of Decatur? And so now there are opportunities that we have and we're going to have in the future to minister to the least of these right here in our own city to make sure that they have glasses. Why does he do this? By the way, he's given out over 4,000 pairs of glasses. A golf professional. That just blows me away. Only God can do this kind of thing. Why does he do it? Because he wants to make sure that they've got glasses they can see. And now let me tell you about something even more important. I want to make sure the eyes of your heart can see and understand the love of our Savior. Ray Pickering. Less than six months after being baptized, Ray comes to me and says, Blake, I I have a heart. I have a desire to help those that maybe the world's going to forget about. Maybe the world thinks they're just going to be another statistic because they don't have the same nuclear family that most of us in our, our, our life have. How can I go and how can I minister to them? So through a ministry that you now know called Seize the Brain, which by the way is in over nine schools and ministering to almost 200 kids every single week. He is ministering to them, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Yes, giving tutoring, but because we wanna make sure people know that we love them, and once we know they know that we love them, then we have an opportunity. We've earned the right to share the gospel with them, which is why Jenna Stout was here this past summer, and we had two weeks where we had almost 40 kids every single day for two weeks hearing the gospel that we've got families that are now visiting because of that ministry. Again, these are just examples of two men that get it. People who get it, they see their job as more than just a paycheck. But they see their occupation as an opportunity to be a witness, an example for Christ. People who get it, they see parenting as more than a list, a laundry list of do's and don'ts of how I can do all these things so I can raise good moral kids. But instead, they understand that we are raising kids so they understand the world's not about you. 
You're not living in an entitled society. You are, we're raising world changers so they can leverage what they have been blessed with, the gifts they have been given, so they can go out and make a difference in the lives of other people. These are people that begin to view life through the lens of faith. They see circumstances as more than just a series of random events. But they understand that in each and every situation that God is teaching them, he's revealing himself so they begin to get it. So here's my question for you. Do you get it? Do you understand this world is much more about than just meeting your needs? There's so much more important things than about collecting more items. Do you view your life through the lens of faith? Do you know that when you get to heaven, God's not gonna be impressed by your trophies? He's not gonna say, I'm so proud of all the things that you collected. Or as my friend Jack Loveless says, are you still playing games at the foot of the cross? See, Jesus didn't feed 5,000 men on a hillside to be some Vegas magician and entertain lots of people and say, oh, look how great a person I am. No, he did this in order for the disciples to understand who he is. He did it so that you and I might believe, so that we might understand that God is up to more than what we can even see with our physical eyes. He did it so that we might believe that we have a greater purpose in our lives once we understand his love, once we grasp his grace that he's trying to give us. Friends, God's trying to get you to notice him. He's trying to get you to realize this world has so much more than what we're seeing. He wants you to view your life through a lens of faith. Because church, when he comes into your life, when he transforms your world, it changes how you see things. And you begin to view life, you begin to view all of life through a lens of faith. And you don't say how this hurts my feelings and it's all about me. No, you say, God, okay, you're, you're doing this for a reason. There's a greater purpose and I don't know what it is. I don't even have to like it, but I know you're up to something. Don't let me miss what is going on in the big picture here. And when you begin to view the world through a lens of faith, you understand that God is much more alive. God is much more active. He is much more involved than you ever could have imagined on your own. I pray that we all get it. We've got one shot at this life. Let's live for his kingdom, not for our own kingdom. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that you clearly laid out for us. That when you sent Jesus, he did not come in an arrogant, prideful, boastful manner, but he came as a servant. Lord, even the fact that he would stoop down and wash his disciples' feet, Lord, I pray that that defines who we are as a church, servant leaders. Why? Because we understand the weight of what has been given to us. You have blessed us beyond measure. 
And it's not just so that we can enjoy life even more, but it's so that we might use the blessings that you have given to us, that we would leverage those opportunities, leverage those blessings so that we might be your hands, might be your feet, that we would live with an eternal mindset. Lord, I pray that we would begin to view life through an eternal perspective, through a lens of faith, Would your Holy Spirit come? And for those of us who are following you, would your Holy Spirit convict us every day of opportunities that you put in front of us to be selfish or to be selfless? And I pray that through the conviction of your spirit that we would look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there is someone in this room today that has never trusted your son as their savior, I pray that today they would recognize the gift of salvation that's been given the price that's already been paid for our sins so that we might live the life of forgiveness, of redemption, that we wouldn't live with guilt, but we would live with the freedom that you purchased on the cross for us. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.